You're listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival, a podcast about Australians who celebrate Lunar New Year. From artists to brain surgeons, fashion designers to board directors. I'm Valerie Koo, and I'm the City of Sydney's curator of the Sydney Lunar Festival. I'm also an artist, writer and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. In this series, we discover the personalities and passions of people who meld their cultural traditions with this sunburnt country they call home. Pamela C. is one of the artists featured in the Sydney Lunar Festival in 2019. She's the artist behind the beautiful sheet lantern inspired by the traditional art of Chinese paper cutting. Born in Brisbane to Chinese-Malaysian parents who migrated to Australia, Pamela has held many exhibitions of her work in Brisbane, regional Queensland, Sydney, Melbourne, Beijing and the United States. Her work has been in the National Portrait Gallery in Canberra, the Queensland Art Gallery, the International Curatorial and Studio Program in the US and the Qingtong Museum in China and many other places. Her artwork is also held in several institutional and corporate collections, including the Australian War Memorial, Parliament House, the Art Gallery of South Australia and more. Pamela, I'm so excited to have this chat with you because you're one of our wonderful artists in the Sydney Lunar Festival. You've designed the Sheep Lantern, and we'll talk more about that in a sec. But let's first start with what does Lunar New Year mean to you? Um, Lunar New Year is a particularly uh, important important um, calendar observance uh, to me because when I was uh, a young girl uh, growing up in the outskirts of Brisbane, we were only one of two um, Chinese families at the school and as such, um, it was it was sort of uh, one of the only occasions that we got together as a community. Uh, my family didn't really celebrate things um, like Christmas or Easter, um, but in Chinese New Year, we, we went to the temple and we ate Chinese food. Um, we got to stay up late, which is a really big deal for, for a small child, and um, we saw things like fireworks and um, lion dancing, so um, a lot of fun memories there. And fast forward to today, do you still do those things or in what what does Lunar New Year look like to you now as an adult who has a small child of your own? Uh, it's it's quite different. I mean, my daughter, it's, it's really can be very um, difficult to get her to engage in <laughs> cultural activities now because she, she's eight and she sort of has her own independent interests. Um, but, I mean, it, it's still, I mean, she loves the food. Uh, I have my extended family, which we, we get together and celebrate. But I think um, as an adult, uh, I'm more concerned about um, the, the other customs that are associated with the event, things like um, clearing your house of, uh, you know, everything that it's kind of broken or um, not, not in use uh, to establish a foundation for the next year because uh, the Lunar Festival in China actually occurs in spring and it's sort of like their big um, clean out as well. But I think the principles, um, you know, they're, they're of great value to us. So I'm more like stressed about that, about getting a house into a state. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as a paper cutting practitioner, I'm expected to make appropriate designs to distribute amongst the community and hang out for good luck. So uh, it's just a little bit different a take, I think. So do you actually um, do a lot of spring cleaning of your house before the start of, uh, before New Year's Day and, and, and make sure that, do you decorate your house or anything like that? Oh, it, it's, it's an event um, I prepare for for months. So, really? Uh, yeah. okay. 
Uh, progressively. And uh, no, a lot of Chinese are very superstitious about this. Yes. So essentially we're even supposed to like clean the windows um, and hang up. You know, the paper cuts are an essential component of the festival too. Um, just, you, you know, for instance, the tradition of hanging up, uh, or rather in the case of paper guts, pasting up a design of a rooster, it's supposed to protect your household. But in, in ancient China, um, say, when the, when the technique developed between the 4th and 6th century, um, they used to have uh, roosters around the house uh, and they would eat, eat predators like, uh, sorry, they, they would eat, uh, are they, I mean, they're, they're not predators to human beings, but they're kind of threats, you know, like centipedes mm. would come mm. out around that time of year. So um, it wasn't just some kind of metaphor for them, you know, and yet it is, like it's some sort of totemic representation of something that, that really happened. Um, and it carries on today. So we still, you know, I still make those kind of symbols. Um, yeah. It's homage to that, to that history. Now, I want to uh, dig deeper about your paper cut practice in a sec, but first let's, let us know, you, you grew up in the outskirts of Brisbane, you mentioned. Were you born in Brisbane? Uh, yes, I was in 1979. And so um, were, where um, were your parents from? Uh, my mum and dad met in Malaysia and they migrated over here. Um, uh, I think it was about 67, um, but my father came came much earlier uh, during the, what was known as the Colombo era. And, oh, um, so did my dad. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, did he go yeah. to university in Brisbane? or? Yes, he did. Right. He did, um, mm -hmm. University of Queensland. Um, but I think, see, my grandfather left China to go to Malaysia in um, 1830. Uh, sorry, not 1830. I, I got it wrong. It's uh, 1930. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just sort of really, my mind... Is, is going back, uh, you know, if he'd left at that time, he'd be one of the first um, first people to come out, you know, uh, out, out, I meant to Australia because they, that's when it really started as well here. But um, um, I, it's because I've been looking at a lot of a lot of migration from, from China to Australia. I'm getting a bit confused. But, sure. but he did leave in 1830. Um, and that, that, that time there was a lot of conflict uh, 1930. Was, uh, yeah, 1930, sorry. 1930, <laughs> there was a conflict um, between the Communist Party and the Kuomintang. I think that's how you pronounce that, um, mm -hmm. the, the nationals. Um, and then a year after that, the Japanese came in as well. So um, it was a time of great conflict. And in my family, uh, that event is always discussed in terms of resilience because he left only with his pants, no shirt or anything else. He just got wow. on a boat and left. Wow. Um, and then from that time, uh, he established himself um, with a business in, in rubber. Um, and during the 1930s, uh, all over the world, in fact, not only in Southeast Asia, um, rubber was like today's plastic. So you could make all sorts of things with it, like rubber boots mm. and rubber raincoats and stuff like that. And so, um, uh, so you're Chinese Malaysian. Your parents are Chinese Malaysian, and they yes. came out here <clears throat> uh, before you were born. And for your listeners who don't know what the Colombo Plan is, it was a, um, uh, a, a basically a plan to promote economic and social development in the Asia Pacific. And one of the one of the many aspects of that plan was that uh, young people from 
places like Singapore and Malaysia and Indonesia were able to come um, like on sort of like scholarships to universities in Australia, which is, I suspect, what happened with your father and and my father. Um, All right, so growing up in Brisbane, did you know from a young age that you wanted to be an artist? I I think the issue for me really was that artists didn't – it didn't seem to me like a profession, although although my father always had that idea that I would be an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because I have an aunt uh, who ran away. Um, what, I mean, she didn't, she didn't actually – I guess maybe she did, but she left Malaysia um, to go to Canada um, and she studied art in Toronto um, and she was an artist. Uh, so uh, she works in textiles. Um, and uh, things like tapestry. Mm-hmm. And as such, he always felt, my father always felt that his father, my grandfather, un- undervalued that. And he thought that it would really, you know, in some sort of way to reconcile this, he, he thought that it would be, you know, I would, I would be, um, it would be good to support my practice. It would be uh, a, great, uh, a great area for me to study because it meant that um, I would stay at home until I got married because it was not financially viable as well. <laughs> So, I mean, it's it's kind of strange to think that way, isn't it? But a lot of, particularly in China, because I, I spent a, quite a bit of time in in my 20s uh, uh, in in China, and and part of that was developing my 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 arts practice uh, amongst um, the mainland Chinese because they didn't make a fuss about my ethnicity. You know, mm. it wasn't because I was a Chinese artist; I was just a mm. an artist, and that was very helpful to my development. Um, but it's it's quite common over there, um, you know. Whereas in in Australia, they might send someone who was bright from a family to bring prestige to your family by being a lawyer or, or a doctor. Mm. Over there, it really has to do with the arts. So mm. I have friends um, in institutions uh, teaching art, saying, "Oh, what do I do with these relatively untalented people? Because their families have sent them here to become artists." Um, <laughs> but Essentially, they don't seem to have any interest. So uh, it's kind of a reversal, don't you think? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that was uh, quite progressive of your father to, you know, really encourage you into the arts. But w- at what age for you personally did you think this is going to be my vocation? Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting question. I, I, uh, I first saw... Um, Chinese art, contemporary art at the Asia Pacific Triennial when I was probably oh 19 maybe uh, 18 19 and that was the first time I saw something yeah tangible that I could relate to using symbols um, from from uh, vernacular and um, and it actually speaking to me so I mean that was a definitive moment in my development um, but not not really until quite a bit later I think um, when I started to get get work as a visual artist. I, I'm actually, um, oh, I'm trained in public relations too. So oh, um, okay. much to the display, dismay of my father, I thought that I might do something a little bit more practical. And I thought, um, because cause I did incidentally, I went to art college, but I just, I just sort of, you know, the lecturers were talking to me about continuing my studies after the graduate degree, you know, just degree and into postgraduate. And I was like, oh, you know, I, I, I want to do something with genuine 
um, influence in the community. What about campaigns? You know, I don't go and do um, communication campaigns. Um, but then I just ended up, uh, the, the information I was proliferating, I was encouraging people to kind of like play golf or drink more <laughs> beer and it just, it didn't sit well with me. So there was just one day, if there was any one moment, um, it, it was actually, uh, I remember it was a Melbourne Cup day because a lot of the staff were at a fashion parade um, and I just had enough. I got up and I walked away from my desk and the person um, managing me, he said, oh, you know, you get back here and you sit down and I just kept walking. And I think um, in the car park I got this phone call um, and it, it was it was for a year of the rooster display run by the Brisbane City Council. So I don't remember precisely what year that was, mm -hmm. um, but uh, they were on a phone asking me to do it, uh, you know. So I, I guess that in that sense, Chinese New Year celebrations have played a part um, in developing my career as well. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of ironic, really. Even though you had that um, period in PR, <laughs> uh, in your art practice you, you studied art, but uh, when did you decide to really get into paper cutting and and why? Uh, well, I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons. I, I as a young child, my the women in my family used to get together and make things out of paper, and that was just a sort of natural way that we we related to each other in groups. Um, so these are like barbecues when the men was kind of talking business or whatever they were talking about. <laughs> the females, like the women, um, we, we just we used to just make things like little paper folded stars for good luck. Um, mm. Was the most distinctive memory, I guess. N not too much paper cutting as such. Um, but in high school as well, we, we studied a bit of European style paper cutting. Um, you know, in the tradition of Hans Christian Andersen. Um, but when I when I got got a bit older, uh, and I was sort of in my early 20s again, I became very interested. You know, as I mentioned to you, Chinese New Year is really, really important to me. Um, and I, I uh, early on, having a degree in public relations, was involved in organising some displays for children for Chinese New Year. Um, there was a children's art space and activity centre in South Bank called Hands on Art. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I was looking for someone to do the paper cuts for that. And I was directed to this woman who is European in background. Um, and she she said to me, firstly, she used to uh, have everything water jet cut anyway. Uh, she didn't really know how to do that. And um, and at her suggestion as well, she said that maybe that I should do it myself, you know. Mm. Um, and that's part of it, but also I think when I when I moved up to central Queensland um, and I was running an arts festival, I was bereft of a studio or any kind of like um, equipment uh, because because I was trained in, in painting. Um, mm. That's quite heavy on materials, so you need to have space, um, so space and uh, equipment and time. Um, mm. So so I mean one thing about paper cutting is. Um, is that it's always been considered a language, uh, the language of the proletariat, particularly um, women in China with varying levels of literacy. Uh, because when you think about it, you don't need a lot of uh, equipment to to do paper cutting. You need paper and maybe just some scissors. Uh, the Polish tradition in, um, 
I, I can't pronounce it. It's something like Winsinkinati. Oh, it starts with a W with Y and a okay. lot of nuance. But it's the same thing. They used to use the shears that they um, that they would clip uh, sheep's wool um, mm-hmm. in the times they're not engaged in these agricultural activities. They would um, they would make paper cuts. Mm. Uh, yeah. So it's 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 accessibility was a real draw card for me. Um, and when I was in Central Queensland, I started to create my own motifs, not not traditional ones that um, the culture dictated for certain times of year. Um, and then this is a uh, what sort of quite, tra- what sort of your own motifs? Well, at that time, I did. I was really interested in the moth migration, uh, migration of moths, um, mm-hmm. and that being symbolic of uh, my own. My migrant experience because they they fly vast distances just like butterflies. Um, but the thing about about living in central Queensland is that you, you see everything is just much much bigger. The spaces are much wider. If you want to go to an exhibition opening, if and you're in Mackay, you drive for five hours to yeah. town, or you don't even think about that. So essentially, um, I was doing a lot of a lot of that with with my partner of the time, and um, we'd go sometimes at night, you know, with all the Amazing, like cane cane field fires, mm. um, and then in the daytime too. But you'd end up on the car windscreen, just covered with these these insects, like moths and butterflies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really had an effect on me. And as such, I, I illustrated them um, in this installation. I think it was called a change of frequency. This is back in two thousand. Um, Four in, and it was installed in the Queensland Art Gallery as part of uh, a program called Starter Space for young and emerging artists. And mm-hmm. essentially, that was the first time, as well, uh, that my paper cuts were shown um, mm. in, in an institution, anyway. Um, and, and part of that, I think, was because uh, internationally there was a movement of paper cutting which started from the mid 1990s um, and it was at its peak uh, during the mid 2000s. And so all over the world, contemporary art scenes, they were looking for uh, their own version of uh, of Kara Walker in, in America, you know, their own uh, their own paper cutter. And it was really fortunate for me because I just happened to be doing it on the kitchen table in Mackay when mm. curators came through. Um, and I thought this would be appropriate for their, their gallery. Uh, in fact, I just thought, like, oh, I didn't really want to give it to you, but... but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you did. Really, but that was a good move, I would say. <laughs> uh, I think. I think my partner at the time, who, who incidentally worked in the art, said to me that he he he, he was um, considering ending the relationship when he saw me react like that. Oh. <laughs> he just thought it was. <laughs> I don't know if he was saying it, but uh, he thought it was such a foolish move. <laughs> yeah. Don't understand. Oh my goodness. Okay. So you've since gone from strength to strength. And one of the things that features in the 2019 Sydney Lunar Festival is your paper cut sheep, except it's not made out of paper. Now the sheep is going to be this amazing installation that's going to be right on Circular Quay next to the Museum of Contemporary Art. They're they're so big that people will be able to walk through them. And there's going to, there's three sheep. Um, can you tell us, you've designed this installation, can you um, tell us the inspiration behind the sheep? Well, uh, it's just um, a bit of a stir here about 
about how I got involved. I, I was having, see, I'm doing a PhD um, at Griffiths University, and I, I was sort of sitting around. I, I saw the, the brief um, for the project whilst I was getting other objects laser cuts. Um, and part of my research is about this relationship between paper and the development of digital technology. So uh, I don't know if you would be aware, but um, sort of early, I think, 19th century, they, they had uh, an invention called the Jacquard weaving loom, and that involved yes. using perforated paper to program uh, a, a mechanized loom, and that technology uh, was the basis of computer technology 100 years later or so. Um, yep. So in that sense, it was a paper cut that gave birth um, to the digital age. And I, my, I'm interested yeah, in this true. idea that therefore anything I cut from paper translates quite readily into digital media and then output in whatever whatever contemporary fabrication method you like. Mm. Um, so I was actually doing a bit of this when I was uh, sitting around and it's like, oh, you know, uh, uh, need something for the Lunar Festival. Mm. And I said, well, I, because I'm year of the sheep, see, so um, mm -hmm. it was just a natural choice. Yes. And um, I'm, I mean, I'm, I use sheep a lot in um, my artwork as well. So, I mean, uh, as a zodiac sign, I'm supposed to be um, passionate and uh, a bit stubborn, um, creative, um, that, and I think sheep are all of these kind of things, but they're also um, important symbols uh, differently for uh, the Australian economy because the first bale of wool um, that was sold in London was in 1821, and um, by 1840, Australia was producing more than 2 million kilograms of wool per year. Um, so uh, this it's um, another reference that I tend to use a lot in my work is to uh, a novel written by uh, Philip K. Dick um, in, mm -hmm. eight, in 1968, and that mm -hmm. was formed the basis of uh, the, the films, the Blade Runner films, about mm -hmm. a dystopian future um, where, where materials, organic materials, are, are rare and valued a commodity and above all else, um, real animals. And it's interesting because sheep are so very common um, today, you know, and then they just, uh, but, uh, it, yeah, so it's, it's something that has a lot of resonance for me. Um, and I, I guess the third reference particularly to do with this artwork um, is a book by Mem Fox, and it's a mm. children's story which, which I, I read to my daughter on countless occasions um, called Where's the Green Sheep? So it, it sort of talks about, um, it, it's basically teaching them adjectives. So where is, uh, you know, the, where is the scared sheep or where is the brave sheep? Um, and then there's like a sheep that's playing in a band, a sheep that's on skis, you know, all these kind of things. But it's a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, you, you know, it, it celebrates the individualism even though they're a collective. So it's a really good message for mm. kids. And I, I think, love sorry. That. No, I love uh, that. I think that's great. Well, that's partly why we have a green sheep, um, yes. you know, in, in the number that, that, are, that are there. So there's three sheep, um, as you mentioned before. There's one that's red for good luck. Um, and uh, there's a blue one. Um, in blue, I mean, red and blue are, are colours that uh, paper cuts are often made into in China. But in this particular instance, I'm interested in blue because it relates to ceramics. And during the Song Dynasty, um, Paper cuts are applied applied directly to ceramics. 
Right. There's another reference to that time period too, in that during the Song Dynasty, uh, there were these this, this variety of lantern called the Walking Horse Lantern, and it it uh, it consisted of a paper cut stuck to gauze, and it was the heat of the candle uh, that made that made the paper cut appear to be walking. And we wanted to capture some of that essence too um, in the artworks by having people walk through. Uh, the lanterns and interrupt the flow of light onto the yes. surface. Yeah, it's um, it's such an amazing installation, and so much wonderful thought has gone behind it. So, um, you know, congratulations. Um, another thing I want to congratulate you about is that in 2018, your work, some of your work, was featured in at the National Portrait Gallery at the exhibition called "So Fine." Contemporary women artists make Australian history, and I was fascinated by this. Can you tell us a little bit about what you exhibited in that exhibition and the thinking behind it? Because I think it's a it's a it's, it's a very interesting story. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, I am presently working on a series of portraits. Uh, there are about there are there are in fact over thirty in number of Chinese Australians that lived uh, here and contributed to the the Australian cultural landscape before um, and during the White Australia policy. So part of the issue with the White Australia policy was not only it restricting uh, the activities of Chinese people living here and obviously others that wanted to, to join them from China. Um, but it also had this effect of whitewashing history. Um, and uh, my, my artworks are part of this uh, kind of a, it's almost mon uh, monumental, this, 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 um, it's, it's this huge dialogue coming from, from our community to, to reinsert them into the canon. Um, mm. And I can give you some examples. That, that works well. I'd love to hear some. Yeah, okay. Um, sorry, just come, come to again. They're not just uh, we're not just in um, the so fine exhibition. We have some uh, some of these paper cut portraits presently up in the Chinese Museum in Melbourne. Yep. And so what what each portrait is it consists of two uh, styles of paper cutting. It has the silhouette portraiture uh, of the 18th century tradition in Europe um, and. Uh, and there's a history of them being used posthumously as well. The first, the first, uh, what they know that were known as in England, is, they were called shades um, before they took on the name silhouette in in France. Um, and it was it was a posthumous portrait of uh, of the Queen who had died from smallpox, and that was just the turn of the century, so um, the 1699. Mm -hmm. And as such, they were always. Um, Affiliated with with uh, funeral things, uh, and so that's that's what I've actually constructed all the actual um, the the portraits of these of this of the subjects from, and this is juxtaposed with paper cut motifs symbolising uh, the the location where each subject is being born and um, a contribution that they made to Australian society. And so let's uh, let's talk about some of them because you've you've got many, obviously, but maybe if you could pick, say, a handful of the people that you've chosen to profile and showcase in this series, the ones most interesting to you or whatever, perhaps you can share that with us and and, and you know why you've picked them. Okay. Yeah. So uh, 
it's one of them. Um, with, most interesting is really. Um, it's really hard because there are so very many interesting people. Uh, but I can say, let's just start with um, Cheong from We of the Never Never. I don't know if you've heard of that story before. Mm -hmm. But um, it was written in 1908 uh, by a woman named Jenny Gunn, and it was an autobiographical account, biographical account of her year in a Northern Territory cattle station. And Cheong, uh, within that novel, was considered a groundbreaking representation of a Chinese person. He was, uh, he is considered Australia's first Chinese celebrity cook. Um, <laughs> so, he was born in 1854 in Guangdong province, and typical of that time, he travelled unaccompanied uh, in, in the first instance to the Big Gold Mountain in California, where he, he honed his culinary skills on the gold fields. And he may have only been young as 12 or 13, 12 or 13 years of age. Yeah. By the time he appeared in the novel, he was in his 40s, and he was described as portly and jovial. Um, mm. Yeah, so uh, he he did things like he managed the market garden and um, he prepared meals. There's this whole section about him preparing uh, a European-style Christmas Christmas dinner, you know, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. So he was mm -hmm. quite quite versatile. Uh, it wasn't just, just Chinese food. And he um, – so he, he, he had a wife in, in China that died during childbirth, but he remarried at the turn of the century. And it's recorded that in 1902 he sent a remittance home at the birth of his twin daughters – Although uh, Chong was a really popular figure, still when he, he tried to re-enter Australia in 1913, he was detained by customs for not having a certificate of exempting him from the dictation test. Um, mm. And but but he he left Australia for the first for the last time in 1919. Um, another woman um, that I think where is did worth where did he go? Oh, he went home to, oh, okay. to to southern China, so mm -hmm. to his family. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, another woman that was actually uh, born in 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 Adelaide um, was Gladys Simchun, and she mm -hmm. was the first. She's credited as the first female importer in Adelaide and the first woman to incorporate a business in South Australia. So she the was the first woman. Full stop. The, the, the first woman to incorporate a business yes. in South Australia. Okay. Yes. Interesting. Because she did that when she was. Uh, just shy of 20 years of age, and that mm. was in 1923. Um, and there are a lot of reasons that she, she, I guess she was able to do that. Uh, she was born from uh, Christian peasants uh, who who migrated here. Well, her father came in 1890 after the birth of his first child, but his, his um, sorry, after the death of his first child, but his wife remained back in Guangdong province to raise an adopted son. Mm -hmm. And he, he took on the name of John and he was hawking uh, produce from door to door using a handcart. Um, but his, his wife joined him at the turn of the century and in 1905 Gladys was born. But she was only 10 years of age when her father died. And I guess partly because... It may have been because of that her, her mother broke conventions, Chinese conventions of the time and sent her to secondary school where she learned bookkeeping. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, I mean, she, she got married to uh, an importer in northeast Tasmania named Teddy, uh, but continued to run her business from Longceston, which was in, which was in Adelaide. 
uh, and that business was eventually passed on to her daughter in 1976. She, she had three children. Um, yeah, but the, I mean, the business is still there. It's been named, renamed in her honor uh, and in Miss Gladys Sintune. Right. And, and probably the most, um, I, I think that maybe your listeners will be familiar with the story, but there's a woman named Daisy Kwok. I don't know if that rings a bell to you. Um, but she was born in Sydney in 1907, one of eight children uh, born of a union between uh, he was he was a merchant from Guangdong province and a woman named Darling Young who was um, born in Bork. Uh, but okay. but she was raised in P- I think it's Peterson in yes in, uh, yes Peterson, Peterson yep. in oh, now being from Brisbane I'm sorry I don't navigate these neighbourhoods very That's much okay. in Sydney uh, and uh, she was at that time they were in a mansion and she was being waited upon by European servants and all the children they they were banned from speaking Chinese for fear of tarnishing their, their English accents. Oh. But in 1818, her father made the decision to relocate the family back to uh, Shanghai, and that was because of anti-Chinese boycotts on his business in Sydney and growing nationalism amongst the diaspora communities. Uh, they were all interested in contributing to the building of a new China. And her family did this by opening up one of the largest department stores in the city called Wing, the Wing On Euporium. And that was that was modelled on um, Sydney's Anthony Bourdain and Sons, which was a multi multi level department store offering uh, fixed prices, courteous staff, and and glass cabinets. <laughs> so she she grew up to epitomise the modernity that was uh, the, the modernity of of Shanghai during the 1920s and 30s. And she she was a desirable socialite who had a degree in psychology and a boutique which she opened, and um, she she also took lessons uh, from from pastry chefs. So, like a uh, Renaissance woman. <laughs> I I guess so for for that time. Um, she yes. married she married a graduate from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, named Wu, and they had um, they had two children together. So. To everybody, uh, I guess, in 1949, greeted the, the, the end of the Civil War and um, the, the coming of the Communist Party into, into government, uh, you know, with great enthusiasm, but they quickly dismantled the lavish upper class. Um, Wu, who was, uh, he, he was quite outspoken in his opposition to the party, was arrested and he died in, three, uh, died in prison three years later. And um, Daisy and her children, they, they were progressively relieved of their privileges and things such as winter clothing, they, they were considered extraneous. Mm. She was relocated to the countryside on several occasions to be re-educated, uh, doing things like uh, digging latrines and lugging bricks around and, and peeling cabbages. And But uh, unlike some of her contemporaries who opted for suicide, she was calmly accepting of her circumstances. Very different from her life in Petersham in Sydney, I'm sure. Um, so I think the fascinating thing about I mean, it, it, these are just some of the stories that are in um, your series. I think one of the fascinating things is that many, many Australians don't know about these people. Many Asian Australians don't know about these people. Um, what level of research did you have to do to discover them or were they already known to you? Before you started on this quite series. difficult. I, I there are, there are a number of uh, very good books that have been written um, 
the I think the I there's a couple of Fitzgeralds. There's a Shirley, Shirley Fitzgerald who wrote uh, a yep. book. The the is the the scissors golden. Do you, you happen to her name? Sorry, I uh, don't remember the name of the book, but we'll put it in the show notes when we find out. Okay. Well, I it's um yeah. So and there's also a John Fitzgerald that also wrote a book. Um, I'm pretty sure it's done. But it's a two Fitzgerald. I'm not even sure if they're related, oh. but they. And that other book is Red Tape, Gold Scissors. Okay, yeah, yep. no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, but uh, a lot of my research has actually been sort of um, through archives, uh, mm. like going through microfilm, and it hasn't been easy to track down through um, migration records uh, you know, what happened to some some of the subjects. So uh, it's been a bit sketchy. But I think that's partly why it's been so rewarding is to bring them all together. And, and I've been using um, using paper cutting as as a device, uh, as any sort of uh, any sort of visual material which is quite scant is quite disparate in nature. So they they just don't fit together. You know, as they, I needed to put them in a common form um, that people mm. could read as a text, um, which mm. is where paper cutting has been quite valuable. Why is this? series important to you or interests you so much? I think, as I mentioned before, when I was growing up in, in, uh, in Brisbane, they, they, went, they were just, I, I got the idea that, uh, particularly during the 1980s, that we were the first Chinese to be around here, um, whereas this is just grossly incorrect. The Chinese started arriving during the 19th century and, uh, in fact, sort of uh, towards the end of the 19th century, in some areas of Australia, uh, Chinese settlers, they outnumbered the European ones by 10 to 1, um, which really instigated this initiative of the government to stop us from coming. Um, so I, I thought it was really important to highlight uh, their contributions, that, that of the early Chinese Australians, because they are so significant. But also for me, um, there's this... this um, sentiment that you're not really local to have someone in the ground, right? Um, what do you mean? They, well, I remember in regional Queensland, people used to refer to others that come to visit or stay for a few years to work as, as it's, not a, it's not a great analogy, but a blow-in, you know? Yeah, right, like, blow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's terrible. So it has to do with sheep. But, um, yeah. You're only no, no, here no. for 10 years, but you're a blow-in. <laughs> no, 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 you're not. See, like this, this, this concept that... Um, we haven't been here very long, therefore you do not have the same sort of rights as other Australians yes. do. Um, and that's, that was part of my, my drive to, to kind of um, to correct this, to, to give particularly other uh, Chinese Australians, people that are growing up now, like my daughter, um, a better sense of what we are to this society. Mm. Mm. And so, um, tell me in fast forward to you know today, <laughs> modern day life. Um, has your uh, Chinese heritage ever been a an asset or a hindrance in in your pursuit and your daily living? You know, that's kind of the definitive question, isn't it? I mm-hmm. I think about it. Um, in fact, all the time, particularly when when we're involved in this uh, very sort of 
I don't know if the word is ethnocentric, but in this celebration all about the Chinese community, in this sense, um, I'm very fortunate to be be part of it. And uh, in a a way, with my artistic career, um, I, as as, uh, I'm able to enter the dialogue of of contemporary art on behalf of an entire community. Um, Although that said, particularly in Sydney, there are a lot of Chinese Australian artists. But um, is that the only way that, that I can be perceived? I mean, t- to me, it's always it's this, it's this constant com- conflict. Um, even in my personal life, you know, as I a Chinese Australian um, uh, here, I, I I remember there was this this uh, friend um, who commented, you know, you're the biggest Chinese person I've ever seen, given my height, and which is, <laughs> and I don't I don't know if this is because in terms of migration patterns during the 19 um, prior to. You, sort of 1980s, and but there's a lot of Southern Chinese here. I don't know if you've noticed, but most more over the years, more, there's been much more presence from people in the north who are bigger. You know, mm-hmm, I think. Yes. Um, but you know, so I didn't really look quite right as a you know petite um, Chinese woman should. It's gentle and um, kind of because uh, I like to play sport too, which my family had a lot of issues with. You know, quite active. <laughs> A lot of stereotypes, and I, I wanted an education, you know, beyond just making artwork. The why did your parent, Why did your family have an issue with you playing sport? It wasn't very becoming of a female to do that, and women oh. are not supposed to have like muscles. <laughs> <laughs> but even to this day, I always sort of feel like an Amazonian. <laughs> it's sort of not, and at the same time, it's sort of this sense of exotic other. But you know, I, I don't. Um, I try and explain to other people part of the reason I felt that I failed in public relations is my appearance. You know, I'm not sort of this this Australian bronze, uh, blonde beauty. And I think to some organizations that really mattered, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, is it an asset or, an asset or a hindrance? I guess it depends on um, what part of society you're navigating. Um, but I can't, to this day, I really can't see, you know, because I'm not fitting that, that stereotype of Asian beauty either, where, where I fit. You're obviously mm. not, not in terms of the, the Euro, Eurocentric one. I kind of just have resigned to sort of kind of odd but maybe interesting looking. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that the word for it is unique and that you're forging your own path and I think you're going brilliantly. I love your artwork. I love the contribution that you've made to the Sydney Lunar Festival with the sheep. Um, So my final question is, with the Year of the Pig, uh, what are you most looking forward to? Well, I mean, the year, the pig is always supposed to be a big year for family. Um, So, you know, it's always, I guess, uh, this hope for happiness in this way. And I don't think just means in terms of your biological family, but getting together with lots of people. So that, I think that would be my, 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 what I'm looking forward to and hoping for this year. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Pamela. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Pamela. Obviously, Pamela takes the practice of spring cleaning very seriously. It's an important part of the tradition leading up to Lunar New Year. And yes, long before Marie Kondo came along to declutter all of our homes, spring cleaning has always been a really big deal in cultures that celebrate Lunar New Year. 
You're meant to clean your home thoroughly, but also fix anything that's broken. You might even repaint your rooms or replace anything that doesn't work. There's a lot of sweeping involved too, because the symbolism behind that is that you're sweeping away any bad luck and welcoming in a fresh new year. And you have to get it done before the first day of new year. Because as Pamela mentioned, there are many superstitions associated with Chinese culture. And some people say that you shouldn't sweep during the first few days of the new year in case you sweep away the good luck. One legend is that there was an immortal being who wasn't very fond of humans and told the Emperor Jade that some humans wanted to overthrow him. The Emperor Jade got angry about this and told the immortal being to find out who the culprits were and to mark their houses with cobwebs so that he could organise for those people to be punished. Legend has it that the kitchen gods in the houses discovered this plan and made people clean the houses thoroughly before Chinese New Year Eve. So when the Emperor Jade's people found so many clean houses, they reported back and the Emperor Jade realised that the immortal being had lied to him and he was punished instead. Okay, so most people don't necessarily think of that legend when they're cleaning their houses though, but it's more about getting rid of the old and starting the new year with a clean slate. Thanks for listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival. My name's Valerie Koo and you can connect with me at valeriekoo.com, that's K-H-O-O. To find out more about the city of Sydney's Sydney Lunar Festival, go to sydneylunarfestival.com Or to find out more about the people featured in this podcast and any of the links I've mentioned, go to newstories.net.au.